Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Claudia Morell. Today I'll be speaking with veteran ABC News reporter and anchor Sam Donaldson. From ABC in New York, this is World News Tonight, Sunday, with Sam Donaldson. Good evening. The U.S. Embassy in Tehran... The Texas native has worked for the network for close to 50 years. He's best known for his time as ABC's chief White House correspondent during Presidents Carter, Reagan, and Clinton. He's also covered major events in Washington and abroad. In 1971, he spent three months in Vietnam covering the war. Soon after, he was ABC's chief Watergate correspondent. During his tenure at the White House, Donaldson reported on the Iran-Contra affair, the Monica Lewinsky trial, and the later impeachment of President Clinton. He's also covered two national party conventions and has followed Barry Goldwater and Jimmy Carter on the campaign trail. Donaldson wrote a book about his early career and time covering the White House called Hold On, Mr. President, where he defends and explains what some have called an aggressive style of reporting. Donaldson has also anchored several ABC shows, including World News Sunday, Primetime Live with Diane Sawyer, and 2020. He's currently an ABC News contributor and analyst. I spoke with Donaldson over the phone to congratulate him on receiving WFUV's Charles Osgood Lifetime Achievement Award in Broadcast Journalism. And to kick things off, I asked him how he wanted to be remembered and if he saw himself as having a lasting legacy. No, I don't think that I'm going to have a lasting legacy and that uh, journalism students will learn about my work for uh, decades to come or that something will be done in the way of, uh, what, a statue? Uh, I tried to do a good job, and sometimes I think I did. And other times I think I fell short because you can't uh, do anything in life, as you know, without uh, occasionally making a mistake. And I made more than my share, perhaps, but I was lucky. And I served uh, most of my time uh, during a period when broadcast news, certainly not in the infancy, that came long before my, my time in the business, but it was still something that could be done without the frantic pace of an MTV quick cut, uh, four-second soundbite, uh, let's move right ahead to another story, let's keep the interest up. Uh, and uh, I was fortunate. Because I think what happens today is, while there's a lot of excitement and a lot of interest, uh, you lose perspective, you lose uh, depth, you lose the ability to actually, if you're doing a magazine show, as I once did, tell a story in some detail that makes some sense to people. We live such a frantic pace today, it's not just broadcasting, that everything is collapsed into minute by minute instead of maybe day by day or week by week. So I was very fortunate to serve most of my time during a period when I could cover stories in a fashion that gave me a chance to do a better job than I think I would do today on the same story using the pace that we have to uh, keep today. Now, you've held many positions over your lifetime. Which job did you find most fulfilling and why? Well, I was identified for a long time with a beat in Washington, several beats that I covered, Capitol Hill. Uh, the Supreme Court at one time in the uh, early to middle 60s. But the White House, uh, for uh, the coverage of President Carter, uh, President Reagan for two terms, and most of President Clinton's second term. And so I think I'm identified with that. 
But the most fulfilling work that I've done was on a magazine program called Primetime Live, which I did for 10 years, co-anchored with Diane Sawyer. Is Primetime Live. Now Diane Sawyer and Sam Donaldson. Uh, we did a lot of stories, and some of them I think mattered uh, in the same way that 60-minute stories, more often than not, matter. Uh, I'm more proud of some of the work I did there than uncovering presidents and doing a minute 30 or a minute 45 or two minutes in a quick report to report the news, and I try to do a good job of that. And I think people who are, were interested in politics and interested in the presidency got some information, but it wasn't the same as the information that I was able to deliver in a longer form with more depth, having done more research, more investigations, and so that's what I'm most proud of. Yeah, actually, you talk a lot about uh, the shifting nature in news, and according to Pew's uh, State of the Media, their most recent one, they said a lot A lot of people are losing faith in the news industry, and they, they uh, cite that nearly one-third of the respondents, or 31%, have deserted a news outlet because it no longer provides the news and information they've grown accustomed to. And given your background in how many years you've been in the industry, do you see this as a growing problem? Well, I think there are always changes, but I think there are growing problems, and you've identified one. Let me just talk for a moment about the problems that I see. When I started in this business, we had a long time, really, before a news broadcast. Of course, there was a deadline, uh, but it wasn't minute by minute. Now with the cable networks, uh, with the, the Internet, with the blogs, with the Everyone being a reporter from the standpoint of immediately trying to tell what he or she knows on Facebook or a tweet or what have you, uh, it's too fast in the sense that there's no time for perspective, there's no time to check it, there's no time to see what the critics say about a particular issue, for instance. You just are out there. Second, uh, the trend toward opinion. I like opinions. I read an editorial page, an op-ed page, and... For many, many years, there have been outlets for uh, people to give their opinion. But today, what we get, uh, in talk radio particularly, is a one-sided view. Uh, and the one-sided view has to be very sharp. It can't be thoughtful. It can't take into account someone else's view and say, well, I think that person is wrong, but I understand where they're coming from. It has to be pejorative. It has to be nasty. It has to be somehow something that energizes a base as if you were talking to true believers, which, of course, most of the people on talk radio are talking to the true believers. They're not, uh, Rush Limbaugh is not converting a thousand liberals to conservatism every week. He's talking to the people that agree with him. And, uh, he then has to keep ahead of the other talk masters who are talking to the same people who might be a little bit more interesting. So Rush and Sean, and I could go down the whole list, they're all fine people, I'm not the saying they don't have a right to or let all flowers bloom to uh, say what they want to within the bounds of decency, obviously. But uh, it's a competition, not simply to get out some ideas, but to beat the competitor to be the sharpest and the toughest and the roughest and the rudest and what have you. And I think that's a problem. Uh, because if you don't measure opinion, your own against others, and say, well, maybe I better consider that. Or you could say, well, I've listened to other opinions, and I still think I'm right, because I hear their argument, and I think it's flawed. In other words, there's not the kind of contemplation of issues that I think our founding fathers uh, thought about. And finally, I think the Internet is a two-edged sword. 
I would not go back and change it in the sense of de- uh, depriving people of uh, the use of this new technology. I use it myself. It's changed the world, not just in communication, on business, on politics, on every form of human activity. The Internet and the ability to uh, reach other people uh, has transformed the world and is continuing to do so. But it's a two-edged sword. Again, a lot of information there. You can immediately take a search engine, Google, and just type in something. Uh, what, what, was, uh, what was Chaucer's uh, third great poem? And it'll come up with an answer. Uh, it is amazing. On the other hand, the Internet allows people who have no knowledge of the facts to put up websites. Uh, you can find on the Internet a website that uh, you can see, demonstrate that the Holocaust was a hoax. Never happened. And it looks professional. You can find that uh, Lyndon Johnson organized the assassination of John F. Kennedy. There it is. There's the information. You can find that a U.S. Navy submarine shot down TW-8-847 over Long Island about 15 years ago, and there was a conspiracy. And, of course, you can find that near Roswell, New Mexico, a spacecraft landed and little green men uh, dead were covered up by thousands of government employees all these years. Uh, it's all there. And without a background, without a perspective, without other things to look at, um, it, it destroys truth. It doesn't add to it. Plus the fact that on the Internet and the ability to communicate, uh, reputations are destroyed. The, the dear lady who worked for the agriculture department, Shirley Sherrod, was the latest, I think, or one of the most uh, frequent examples, uh, a year and a half or so ago, uh, a right-wing uh, uh, blog uh, took half of her speech to the NAACP. Uh, she was an agriculture worker in Georgia. Her job was to help farmers uh, apply for government assistance programs for which they were eligible. She began her speech by saying, she's African-American, I thought at first, why should I help the white farmers? I mean, they enslaved my uh, forefathers. Uh, wh- why? And then she went on to say, but I soon realized that my job was to help all the farmers, no matter what their race or their color. And I, I finally enjoyed doing that because that was, A, what helped the country move forward, B, what helped us reduce the animosity from ancient wrongs. And it was a wonderful speech. But this guy simply took the first half, and he did it on purpose. He knew exactly what he was doing. It was a mistake. And he put it on his blog. And with a speed that is summer lightning, the agriculture department, had this woman pull over to the side of the road and resign because they were afraid that uh, that night on Fox News they would be savaged for employing a woman who would say that. Of course, the next day, the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, actually listened to the full speech and realized it had been had, realized that the department had been made a fool of. Now, they called Shirley Sherrod and apologized profusely begged her to come back and said, we're so sorry we did this and it was this mistake. And to her credit, in my view, she said, no, I don't think I I want to do that. Well, that was the Internet. That was a reputation destroyed, not actually because the facts were finally known. I could give you story after story of how that second side of the two-edged sword injures. It, it, It doesn't inform. It doesn't enlighten. It doesn't make our world better. It hurts it. And the reason is not the Internet, in the sense that it's an evil thing. The reason is people who misuse it, and the ability to do that is rampant. 
So you take all of these things together, and yes, I think there's a there's a problem today. Uh, we have one of the most enlightened society in our history because there is more information. If you know where to go, you know where to check it, you know what to do with it. At the same time, people who either don't have that ability or don't care misuse these new technologies, and with the fast pace of our life, I think it is a big problem. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Claudia Morell, and I'm speaking with news veteran Sam Donaldson as he looks back on his career and time in Washington. Sam is especially known for not being afraid to ask tough questions. In fact, he was notorious for his aggressive questioning style when he was part of the White House press corps. Here's a series of clips from an ABC News tribute. What yes, makes sir. you think that the American people are ready to elect a segregationist president? Did you think you had a snowball's chance at first? The polls show that a lot of American people just simply don't believe you. Credibility has been severely damaged. Excuse me, but if, if you don't want to answer my question, I understand, but may I try another one then? I'm not quite certain where the logic is here. How can you justify this duplicity? I've lost my voice, Sam. I can't talk. <laughs> I wish Sam would lose his. <laughs> During the interview, I asked Sam what his response is to those who criticize his reporting style or question his integrity as a reporter because of it. Well, I think a reporter's job, and I know I'm a political reporter, so I don't know about other fields necessarily, is to question the people who have been elected or appointed uh, in our government. Uh, and uh, the questions ought to be ones that the uh, voters would like to have the answers to. If I ask a president or anyone else a question, it's not just me. I, I want the answer. Well, I'm one voter and one citizen, but I'm a conduit for the information. And the questions ought to be ones of moment. They ought to be ones that count. If all you can say is why you were such a great man or woman, sir, or madam, uh, don't bother. I mean, <laughs> that, that's nice to reward people. But the questions ought to be on things that go wrong. Why did this go wrong? What are you going to do about it? What is your plan for the future? Uh, particularly on a president. Are you going to get us into a war? Why would you do that? Uh, give us the reasons and all of this. Uh, now, politicians naturally resent having anyone look over their shoulder, uh, the press included. Uh, we have a situation right now with the Honorable Mitch McConnell. He's the uh, senior senator from the great state of Kentucky. He's the Republican leader in the Senate. Uh, the last time he was up for an election, he only won by six points. The polls say he's not very popular in Kentucky, and he's facing a very difficult time. Well, someone leaked a tape of a strategy session that he and others in his camp were, uh, they thought, in secret planning when they thought they'd run against Ashley Judd, the daughter of Naomi Judd. She's an actress, but she's not going to run after all. And she had written that she was depressed early in life. She thought about suicide when she was six years of age and had went through depression. And so they were talking about how they would use that against her if she ran. Well, the tape was leaked by someone. Uh, Mitch McConnell is blaming the press. He's saying it was the liberal press that did all of this. And yet there seems to be no evidence there were any reporters of any stripe present. There's no evidence, although he claimed his office was bugged, that there was a bug. He's produced no physical bug. Um, lawyers, you know, have an old saying, if you have the law on your side, you talk the law. If you have the facts on your side, you talk the facts. If you have neither on your side, 
you pound the table. Uh, Senator McConnell is clearly pounding the table. And uh, it's easy to beat up on the press. And we often deserve, when we make mistakes, to have that pointed out. I've also, I told you earlier on, I've made, a, I've made mistakes. And I can't defend them by saying, oh, you're just beating up on reporters. No, no. We should correct our mistakes. Everyone in life makes some mistakes and, and should try to correct them. But the idea that the press somehow causes our problems is wrong. If there's a problem in the press that we do too little investigative reporting these days, newspapers particularly have had to cut back their budgets. And so what they cut are these people like Dana Priest of uh, the Washington Post. It took six months to come up with the help of others. Uh, the scandal at Walter Reed Army Hospital, where our veterans were being mistreated badly. For six months, she turned in those stories. She was paid every week. Well, they don't do that anymore. Uh, and so if there's a problem, it's not that reporters are not aggressive, are too aggressive, rather. It's that reporters are not aggressive enough. They don't have the resources that they should have, you know, to bring the public information it needs. Uh, when I covered the White House, the job was simply to inquire the president and his people, what's going on here today? What's really going on? Not what they say is going on, because we all put the best foot forward. And if I were president, of course I should be scrutinized. I should be held to a high standard, as we should hold our president. When I covered Ronald Reagan, um, a lot of Republicans told me they thought I was being a vicious person, uh, deliberately trying to tear down a great president, and uh, uh, maybe I was, uh, in those days, uh, the Soviet Union was still in existence. Maybe I actually was a secret communist and all that. And the Democrats, a lot of Democrats say, oh, thank goodness, oh, Sam, thank goodness you're there. You ask those questions, should be asked. Uh, at least one reporter is really doing his job. Then later on, when I covered Bill Clinton, and it was during the Monica Lewinsky thing, uh, the story erupted one week after they sent me back to the White House. Now, all of a sudden, a lot, a lot of the same Democrats, what happened to you, they said. You, you, I guess you just got rich and joined the country club of the Republican Party. Look what you're doing to this great president, this man who's compassionate for the poor, who loves people, and you're tearing him down with all these lies or whatever. And some of the Republicans, not all, but some said, well, you see, my son, you're doing much better. And with age comes wisdom. Well, I'm the same guy. Yeah, I was older, but I was the same person trying to ask the same type of question in the sense of making a president accountable for his actions. Uh, but depending on whether it was your guy I was questioning or the other person's guy, you either liked what I did or you hated what I did. Well, that's not a reporter's responsibility to, to play one side or the other. And I used to say half facetiously, the only way you can be saved as a political reporter is to be equally vicious to all of them. Yeah, it's kind of like in your book where you said, don't blame the messenger, blame the message. But I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Watergate and Vietnam and how you called them game changers for your generation um, in your book, Hold they On, were. Mr. President, yeah. and how you said it was a new way of looking at your responsibility to... Do you think this sense of responsibility has faded away with this new generation of reporters, uh, that there no, isn't this underlying... No, I think we have good reporters today. They're they're better trained than I was, perhaps. They're better educated than I was, perhaps. But they have a much tougher job. Again, we've talked about the speed. We've talked about the tactic. And I can tell you, when in terms of the White House, uh, almost every new administration finds different ways to curb the press. 
to keep the press from finding out things. Well, ultimately, press does find out things. Ultimately, uh, leaks occur. You can't stop the leaks um, because people not only want to talk, but they want to get back at their enemies. And sometimes they just genuinely believe that the public has a right to know something that's being covered up. And those are the best people from my standpoint. So that, that, that's going to happen. It happens today. But again, we have uh, in this presidency, uh, they've learned to use the Internet. They've learned to make money that way. They've learned to get their message out. They've learned to, you know, in good times at least, to go over the backs of, uh, of the heads of uh, White House reporters. Uh, and uh, you can't blame them, can you? I mean, they didn't come to the White House in order to expose all their mistakes and say, here I am now, I want you to know what a dummy I was today. No, that's, that's not what's going to happen. So they're much shrewder they are. But don't blame reporters and say they're not as good as my generation. I think, in fact, many of them are much better. But what about the Iraq war? Would you not see that as history repeating itself? You said in your book when you were in Vietnam, you knew it was a mistake just being there for three months in the very beginning of the war. Yeah, perhaps you know the Santana's famous dictum that those who do not remember history are doomed to repeat it. I think that's right, but the problem is, who are the people remembering? If Robert McNamara were alive today, he would not have gone into Iraq, because he learned the lesson from Vietnam. But he wasn't running things, and new, new people were. And the new people always say, yeah, yeah, I understand that, I've studied history, but they didn't do it right. I'm smarter, I can do it better, I can go into Iraq, it's okay. Or I can go into Iran, or I can do whatever I want to, because I know how to do it. Remember, the Kennedy administration had the so-called best and the brightest. My friend, the late David Halberstam, wrote the book by that name. Uh, McNamara came from Ford Motor Company, was a whiz kid, but George Bundy, the dean from Harvard, I mean, they're all the best and the brightest. But they made the mistakes. They wouldn't repeat them. They would have learned from history. But they're no longer there. And the new guys, they don't remember history in the sense that they had their gut out there and felt the fact that they'd made a mistake, so they're going to make them. And that's the way it goes. And during your tenure at the White House, uh, which president was most challenging to cover? I know you spent a lot of your book talking about Reagan. Well, in the book, of course, I, I, I decided to do the story of my life when I was 55 years of age. I'm 79 today. I missed a, some portion. So, yes, by the time uh, I wrote it during the Reagan administration, Reagan, to me, was the most challenging. Now, I went down to the White House beginning when John Kennedy was president, but never asked, never had the, the courage to try to ask him a question. Uh, but I observed him, and I began interviewing presidents with Lyndon Johnson, and I've interviewed every one of them since, except for Barack Obama. Uh, but the most challenging from the standpoint of the work he was doing, the issues he was uh, dealing with, and the results, both good and bad, I think were probably Ronald Reagan, sure. Nixon was different. I was the Watergate correspondent. You mentioned that. Uh, for ABC News during that period, not the White House correspondent. But I covered the trial of the Cubans who had invaded the DNC. I covered the Senate hearings. I covered the impeachment investigation in the House of Representatives. Uh, and that was challenging in, in a real sense. Uh, but we could spend all day talking about Richard Nixon, but I know you don't have the time, and frankly, neither do I. I'm going to have to move on, Claudia. Yeah, it's okay. So then, uh, moving on, what was the most revealing interview you've ever done? Well, it was with someone you've never heard uh, about, I think. Uh, could we make this the last story, because I really do have to move on here. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you, because you're a great conversationalist. You let me do the talking, and I love to do that, right? If you want, I'll tell you the most challenging person 
but it takes a moment or two. I met a man in Bariloche, Argentina in 1974. That's a town a thousand miles south of Buenos Aires. When I met him, he was 80 years of age. Kindly-looking grandfather, he was the pillar of the community, he was head of the cultural association. His name is Eric Tripke, and I met him on the sidewalk where I knew he was going to be, and he spoke pretty good English. And I asked him if I could talk to him about what he'd done in the Second World War, and he said I could. He was the number two Gestapo chief in Rome, and he helped organize the massacre of 335 Italian civilians on Hitler's direct orders. There had been a killing of German soldiers the day before, and Hitler ordered a reprisal of 10 civilians for one German soldier who was killed. And actually, they should have gotten 330, but they couldn't count. They added another five by mistake. They took him out to the Argentine caves, and Pripke and the other officers of the SS, the Gestapo, shot them with machine pistols in the back of their necks till they were all dead. Well, he explained to me he was following orders. And he couldn't understand why I didn't understand. He said he didn't want to do it, but he was ordered to do it. And, of course, he had to obey the orders. And we argued that uh, that's not an excuse <laughs> anymore. And he said, you did it in Vietnam, and went back and forth. And finally, having exhausted the topic, he was unable to persuade me that uh, it was right for him to shoot these people because Hitler had ordered them. Uh, I moved to another area, and I said, after the Allies pushed you Germans out of Rome. The war went on for another year. You were in northern Italy as an officer. He said he was. I said, did you not work for Opt4B, apartment 4B of the Gestapo, headed by Adolf Eichmann? They, of course, had the, 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 the duty of trying to round up all the Jews and, and killing them. But he denied that. He was smart enough to deny it. But we had, uh, uh, under his own signature, uh, export papers where he had uh, he had authorized the uh, exporting of exporting of uh, about five to six thousand Jews to Auschwitz, and most of them never came back. Uh, he said he never killed a man just because he was a Jew. He said that we got along very well in Berlin with him. I showed all that videotape to uh, Rabbi Heyer, who's dean of the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles. So, well, of course, the SS was a volunteer organization. They liked Hitler's policy. In any event, at the end, uh, when I told him, uh, having lost my cool, that uh, many people thought he should be executed for his crimes, uh, Pritke uh, decided it must be wrong to sit here and talk, stand there and talk to me. So he got in his car, he looked up, and he said, you are not a gentleman. I said, well, I'm not a mass murderer. We put the story on the air. He was finally extradited to Italy, which has no death sentence for any crime at any time under any circumstance. But he was awarded a life imprisonment. When last I checked, at about 98 years of age, he was still alive. That was the most interesting person that I've ever interviewed, okay? Wow, that is a fascinating story. So finally, since this is a student-run station, I just wanted to get some quick advice that you have for those that are trying to pursue a career in this industry. I know in your book you talk a lot about hard work and that people who work from the bottom up are tend to do better. And is that still... Yeah. First of all, I think what you and your colleagues are doing there is great. You're getting a good education. I don't think today you can survive in this world, certainly not if you want to be in the news business, uh, without an adequate education of the arts and the sciences and, and, and across the board. I mean, I used to ask uh, bright young people who came to work as interns at ABC News many years ago, I, uh, who, who was you know, Joseph Stalin, and half of them wouldn't know. And not that you're going to be using uh, Joseph Stalin's name in your news reports on a daily basis, but... You just have to know these things. So that's what you're doing, first of all. Secondly, get out there, as you say. You have to work very hard. Take jobs that don't pay a lot of money. Don't expect to be a star immediately. I chaff at the 
very bright journalism students who come to me and say, how do I get to be the anchor? Well, I said, <laughs> if you work for 15 or 20 years and God is good and you're pretty smart and you're pretty lucky, you get to be the anchor and then you make a lot of money maybe. But you're not going to make a lot of money and be an anchor in a year or two. And if you are, it means God, uh, that God has despised you because you will fail. Jessica Savage failed. We have people uh, at NBC. We had people, the young people who came on too fast at ABC who failed, not because they weren't smart, but they didn't have the background. So get the background, and then move up and be aggressive. If you're going to be a reporter, don't sit in the back of the room with your hand up waiting to be called on. You'll never be called on because people like me will be up there and we'll be doing the, the questioning and we'll be doing the story while you're being polite. Uh, I, I'm not for rudeness. But boy, I am for moving forward. Okay, Claudia, thanks a lot. Have a great day. Bye. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Claudia Morell. Mm-hmm.